0: Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes, and I'm here with Terry Fakes. We are continuing through the minor prophets. As we talked about in the Joel episode, if you've listened to that one, or if you're confused about who the minor prophets are, head back to the episode on Joel. These are shorter prophetic books that end the New Testament. So they come after what we consider the major prophets, which would be Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. After the book of Daniel, And we are working our way through some of these minor prophets and we've come to the book of Amos. Now, Amos is unique in a couple of ways, uh, as you'll see against some of the other minor prophets in that we actually know a lot about Amos. And uh, for what it's worth, there are several very famous passages in Amos. So some of these lines are going to sound familiar, whereas some of these Old Testament minor prophets, they don't have very many famous passages You may not have heard of them. You may not have studied them. Amos is is a pretty familiar character in the New Testament, and he is right right in the midst of the action in the northern kingdom of Israel. So let's start by saying, who is Amos? And we actually have a lot of information, comparatively speaking, because in chapter 7, Amos gives a little calling of his own. So he says in chapter 7, verse 14, I was no prophet nor a prophet's son and by the way this is where we get the, we get the phrase I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet. Right. And but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs but the Lord took me from following the flock and the Lord said to me go prophesy to my people Israel. Now when you add that to the very beginning of the book we actually come away with quite a bit of information the words of Amos who was among the shepherds of Tekoa so Tekoa is a place Which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. So that would be Jeroboam the second, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. So when you tie all that together,
1: we've got a lot of information about this minor prophet. We definitely do. It's very helpful and not uncommon to date uh, in those days in whatever country you were in to date what. Uh, any event, from the reign of the king. And Israel at that time, what we know of as the nation of Israel today, has been a divided kingdom. And so the northern portion with the 10 tribes is called, confusingly, Israel. And the southern portion down around Jerusalem and that area, which had is the territory of basically two tribes, is called Judah. And so he dates it by both. He said he saw this uh, concerning Israel the northern kingdom in the days of Aziah king of Judah so Aziah ruled in Jerusalem from 792 to 740 BC and Jeroboam king of Israel Jeroboam the second ruled in that northern kingdom from 793 to 753 so short version he's prophesying somewhere around 792 Uh, 750 BC, Mm -hmm. 790 to 750. And if we knew what earthquake he was talking about, we could really pinpoint this since it was in the two years before the great earthquake. Uh, But we do not know with certainty when that happened. But this is a remarkable amount of knowledge about exactly when he's prophesying and exactly who he is. Yeah, the other thing about this
0: is this is a time of relative stability in these kingdoms for the mere fact that both of these kings ruled for a long time so you have very long reigns and usually that means relative stability in both of the kingdoms and that's certainly true here the third factor besides the two long reigns is that in the surrounding areas you have kind of a unique circumstance where the assyrian empire is not as strong as it was and not as strong as it will be. So there is not an occupying power until the end of this time period. So tell us a little bit more about what's going on in the surrounding areas when
1: Amos is prophesying. That's a great point because you're going to see the geopolitics of the time and follow this narrative because it's going to result in spiritual impact on the Israelites, on the Jews, particularly those in the Northern Kingdom. So in the 800s, you have the Babylonian Empire in the north, think Iraqis you know in what's modern day Iraq, and they're very powerful and they're battling with the Assyrians who are also in that that area and the Assyrians win and they they begin to be the dominant power in this whole part of the world. but they start having economic problems, wars are expensive. They start having rebellions from some of the other little countries around them in the north. And this area, Israel, is a little too far away to pay very much attention to. And consequently, they're not meddling here very much. They're not collecting the taxes very much. They're weak. And so what you just pointed out is both Israel and Judah, the northern and southern kingdoms, have kings for 40 or 50 years because Assyria is not projecting power. They're almost independent, if Mm -hmm. you will, during that time. Well, needless to say, if you're not paying a lot of taxes and you've got peace, you're not fighting wars against Assyria or anybody else, you get into a time of prosperity. Well, prosperity doesn't always do good spiritual things. And so from about 800 to about 750, the exact time period here, you see that the Israelites in general, but particularly the ones in the northern kingdom, the prosperity causes them to turn to idolatry, and it also causes them to to move towards social injustice. The rich get richer, the poor get poorer, and most importantly, the rich begin to oppress the poor. And so you'll see these themes of not being faithful to God because, hey, things are going good. We don't need God. And you'll also see themes of social justice in this book. Now, shortly after Amos writes about 750 or so, you get a new Assyrian king, and he really cleans up the, the Assyrian army. He defeats the enemies and he reestablishes control. And when he gets to Israel and finds out that Israel hasn't been paying taxes while they were weak, he ends up basically, short version, destroying that northern kingdom in 722 about 30 years after Amos is prophesying. So they're in a nice little lull, if you will, geopolitically. And unfortunately, though, that causes spiritually bad things to happen to them. Yeah, I want to make a connection here just so that we can tie
0: in the rest of the Bible into what's going on in the book of Amos. So as you mentioned, um, you have a relatively weak Assyrian empire until 745. So if this book is 760s, let's say, or slightly... Mm -hmm earlier or later than that. He's prophesying things are about to change for Israel. And sure enough, in 745, you have a guy named Tiglath-Pileser III who takes over. And he is one of the most powerful and dominant Assyrian kings. In fact, he's the one that finally subdues all of Babylon. His palace is in a place called Nimrud, which is similar to Nimrod, which is a familiar biblical term from way back in the book of Genesis. But his capital at Nimrud, actually, there are these carved walls. They're almost like political propaganda of his exploits that are in the British Museum. And there's one, not from his reign, but from right about the same time from Nimrud in the Nelson Museum in Kansas City, actually. You have a big genie who's pollinating these flowers, and it's from the throne room in Nimrud. So Tiglath-Pileser is a a big conqueror. He is actually mentioned in the Bible in 2 Kings chapter 15, but his name there is Pul, P-U-L. So when you see that, this is during the reign of the king called Pekah, P-E-K-A-H. And uh, he asserts dominance over the northern kingdom, makes them pay tribute his son is named Shalmaneser V. These guys really knew how to name their kids. Uh, Shalmaneser V, he lays siege to Jerusalem, and his son, Sargon II, completes the destruction of Jerusalem in 722. Now, just to bring this full circle, those Shalmaneser V and Sargon II are both sons of tiglath Pileser, And his grandson, who's the son of Sargon, is named Sennacherib who is another major character in the Bible. He's the one that lays siege to Jerusalem in the Southern kingdom in 701 during the reign of Hezekiah. So that's the story of the Rabshakeh. Uh, there's historical evidence of Sennacherib's siege of Jerusalem and right. Jerusalem actually stands during that time because the angel of the Lord kills 185,000 of the Assyrian troops. Um, and it, it, ends up surviving another 140 years or so. But this all ties together. These characters are both in the prophets,
1: they're in the historical writings, and it gives you a picture of what's going on in the world. That's a great point you make, because now as you read the book of Amos, and you see the judgment, and you see these hints that God's going to bring judgment through some armies or something, you we have the ability to look back and say, you know what? He literally was foretelling the Assyrian king Shalmaneser, coming to the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 and completely destroying it and deporting all the people. In other words, you are reading Amos, knowing how the story ends. Mm-hmm. You also know that Judah, the southern kingdom, does repent. And Hezekiah is a king that turns back to God. And so they aren't destroyed in 722. But later, Sennacherib, tries to destroy the southern kingdom in 701, and they turn to God, you can read about this, as you said, they turn to God for help, and he rescues them. And so you see Amos's prophecies playing out in a variety of ways. But it's really interesting and faith building for us to be able to read what Amos is saying in the 760-ish, and then we know what happens 20, 30, 40 years later. Mm Mm-hmm. Another biblical connection here
0: is the influence that Amos, who's one of the first of the prophets. So this is very early among the prophets. The influence that he had likely on the book of Isaiah. So Isaiah is a prophet later, a little over a century later. He actually takes up in the year that Uzziah dies. So this is the connection here. Um, And he's going to prophesy about the fall of Jerusalem. He's going to counsel Hezekiah. And in some ways, there's a similarity because what Amos says about the Assyrians who are coming to attack the northern kingdom, Isaiah is going to counsel uh, King Hezekiah about the Assyrians who are coming to um, attack the southern kingdom. So he's almost looking to his prophetic heritage here, to an older, wiser prophet, uh, maybe his grandfather's age, let's say. And he is counseling with the words that God had counseled then on an imminent Assyrian invasion to the Assyrian invasion that they are incurring at that time. So the, the, probably the closest direct quote is from Amos chapter six, verses one through seven to Isaiah chapter five, 11 through 13. And so you see a little bit of interplay there, prophesying similar things to similar kinds of invasions. One ends in destruction, Ultimately, and one actually staves off destruction. Ultimately, now the book of Amos is familiar because there are several passages that are often quoted in the New Testament. And this is going to be a great way to break into some of the themes of the book of Amos. Because Mm -hmm. one of the things that's really helpful is the New Testament writers aren't always quoting the most prominent pieces of the book. Sometimes they're quoting what we would consider sub themes, but a lot of times they are helping us to see what they thought about these books. And so, for example, there may be four quotes of the book of Amos in the book of Revelation. And the reason for that is because Amos is prophesying destruction. And as we talked about in the podcast on the book of Joel, whether the destruction is in the northern kingdom, whether it's in the first century AD, whether it's in the end times, the language is often very similar. So I'll give you one example. In Amos chapter 3, verse 7, Um, you see uh, what has become kind of a famous passage for the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. This is a big verse in charismatic circles, but in the book of revelation, actually what you see is this specific vision that's given to the prophets comes to bear in destruction that the prophets have been foretelling because later in revelation chapter 10, verse seven, um, when you see the angel in the little scroll, um, there's a trumpet that's sounded by the seventh angel and the mystery of God is fulfilled just as he announced to his servant, the prophets. So there's a, if Mm -hmm. if not a direct quote, there's an allusion here to what's said in the book of Amos. And what they're getting at is oftentimes God is speaking about future destruction through his prophets. And so when he shares these things with his prophets, a lot of times what's coming is destruction. And so revelation is playing back on this theme in Amos. And again, that happens uh, several other times. The most prominent um, themes in Amos and the way that it's quoted in the New Testament elsewhere is in the book of Acts. So twice in these speeches in Acts, first in the speech of Stephen and second at the Jerusalem council, you Mm -hmm. get quotes from the book of Amos. Um, The first one being in chapter five of Amos, which we're going to spend some time on because I think this is the heart of the book of Amos. Right. So in chapter five, in verses twenty. Uh five through twenty seven, again, slightly after where I think probably the heart of this book is. It talks about sacrifices and offerings during the time in the wilderness. Um, and Stephen's going to quote that to talk about the hard-heartedness of Israel and why they incurred the judgment of God. And then he's gonna he's going to build off of that and say, and so God sent his son, who was put to death by. Uh, the people of Israel in the town of Jerusalem, but God raised him from the dead. And so, you know, ultimately that doesn't turn out very well for Stephen. He takes the way of a lot of the Old Testament prophets, where he is rejected and persecuted, and he's ultimately put to death. But he's quoting this same impetus from Amos, in which I think comprises the heart of this book, which is the false worship of the people of Israel compared to what God has demanded of His people in worshiping Him, and so. Let's back up a few verses here to verse 18, because this section 18 to 24 is the real heartbeat of of things that are going on in the book of Amos.
1: Well, historically, let me set this up because you're right. This particularly 21 to 24, I'd I'd invite your comment on that. But let me frame this for you. So a little bit before this time, when the kingdoms initially divided after Solomon, there was a northern kingdom, and the king there was Jeroboam the first. This is a later Jeroboam. And then in the south, you have a king who ruled in Jerusalem. Well, in the north, Jeroboam decided that, you know, I can't have the people in the north in these northern ten tribes going down to Jerusalem to sacrifice because that weakens my political position. So he built a replica of the altar, not the whole temple, but the altar where you would sacrifice to God, to Yahweh, in Bethel, which is a town just close to Jerusalem, just a little to the north in his kingdom, not in the southern kingdom. And then another one way up north in Dan. And so this, the scene here is likely in Bethel, in that town near the southern kingdom. And there is a place for all them to come and sacrifice to Yahweh. Unfortunately, however, Jeroboam, not a particularly religious guy, not very devout, he wanted the people to be able to sacrifice according to the law of Moses, but he also set up altars to all kinds of other gods too. So it was sort of a full service, you know, come to Bethel and you can worship any God that you want to. And so Amos pronounces a judgment on that. And why don't I just read 21 to 24? And then, because I think this is one of the more misquoted So listen to him with the knowledge now that he's talking about them sacrificing in Bethel instead of Jerusalem and sacrificing to other gods as well. He says, I hate, this is God speaking through Amos, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them and the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs, to the melody of your harps I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. So on the surface, it's God says, I'm not going to accept your worship. And I think a lot of times if you read this out of context, you say, well, maybe God doesn't really care about ritual or worship or tithing or going to church or any of those things, but when you put it in context, he's saying something quite different.
0: Yeah, I think this is, a, this is a classic example of maybe the right doctrine from the wrong text, and a lot of times you hear this text taken out of context. I hate your religious feasts. I despise your religious practices, but I wish that justice would roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream, and the point that is often made of this passage is God doesn't care about our man made um, styles of worship. He really just wants us to do the right thing and do justice and turn our hearts towards Him. In some ways, that is true. Like I said, maybe this is right doctrine from the wrong text, but that is not what this text is talking about. What this text is talking about is the um, fake and imitation worship that the Northern Kingdom has set up to go by their own convenience rather than what God has explicitly told them to do. See, one of the things that's true in the Old Testament and the New Testament is God actually cares how he is worshipped. So much so that he has a whole section of the Old Testament talking about what the temple should look like, what the curtain should look like, what the walls should look like, what the altar should look like, what people should do when they come in, how they should go about it. The point of the New Testament is not to say none of that stuff matters anymore. The point of the New Testament is to say Jesus has fulfilled that system of worship. But what the New Testament is not doing is saying so God doesn't care anymore how you worship. And right. in fact, what this what this passage is saying is almost the reverse of that, which is God cares so much how they worship that He will not accept any worship even if it is logistically correct because it is set up in a false temple at Bethel or at Dan, for example, although we think Amos is at Bethel, instead of in the true temple of Jerusalem.
1: Yes, and you know, it brings a core idea that I think extends even beyond worship, but certainly in worship, and that is this. We don't obey God on our terms. We don't follow God on our terms. We don't serve God on our terms. We obey God. We serve God. We worship God on his terms. I think that's a, you will see that over and over and over. And this is a great example of that. So you're right. He's not saying, I don't want you to worship me, or I want you to do the things of the heart. I don't want you to to do the other things. In this time and in this era, he most certainly wants them to offer sacrifices. This is the law of Moses that God gave. What he's saying is, is it it is the most arrogant and rebellious idea that you will serve me when and where and how you wish. Mm -hmm. And, And I think that's the sin for which they will be destroyed. Right. You know, one of the things that Amos prophesies is that a full
0: end is coming to the northern kingdom. And in fact, this is true historically. We think of the destruction of the temple in 586, the scattering and the exile period, and then the restoration. The -hmm. Northern kingdom is not restored. So what Amos prophesies in chapter eight, uh, the Lord says, the end has come on my people Israel. I will never again pass them by. This is a true destruction in the Northern kingdom. In, In 722, when they are destroyed for the reason we just mentioned, for worshiping God on their own terms, for worshiping idols, for turning their hearts away from God, for neglecting the things that he's commanded them to do. He makes a complete and full end to the northern kingdom. You actually never see a restored kingdom like you do in the southern kingdom of Judah.
1: Exactly. And as a matter of history, there are 10 of the 12 tribes that make up the Jewish people lived in the northern kingdom, and they were dispersed. But over time, they were assimilated into the cultures around them, and they lost their distinctiveness. They lost their distinctive ethnicity. They lost their distinctive customs, and they certainly lost, if they ever had it based on this, their distinctive faith in Yahweh. And when you hear about the 10 lost tribes of Israel, that's what it's talking about. These 10 tribes are lost to history. And virtually disappear from the pages of history. You're right, Cole. This is a, a judgment for which there is no restoration. Right. And so and some of this, this isn't everyone that we're talking about here, but some of these people
0: stay, they intermarry, they forsake God. And we see them again in the New Testament as the Samaritans. Right. So you know about the tension between the Jews and the Samaritans. Well, part of the tension is that they used to be brothers and sisters. And now after the Assyrians conquer, after a long time, I mean, we're talking seven centuries here, but intermarrying, foreign gods, all of a sudden you have these two groups that really can't stand each other.
1: One other thought that is very personal to me in the sense that this passage is the heart to me of this book and the idea of worshiping God on his terms, not on my terms. And I, whenever I read the Sermon on the Mount, I think of this passage when I read the latter part of Matthew 7, where it says in that, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And on that day, there'll be many who say to me, but Lord, did we not do great things in your name? And he'll say, I never knew you. And the way I understand that passage is, I I might be doing things for Jesus, and I might be doing good deeds, and I might be doing it in Jesus' name, but am I actually obeying Jesus am I doing this my way or his way? And this verse always connects to that for me as a faith lesson for me in obedience to Christ is I'm not free to worship God the way I want, and he will accept it on my terms. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just to put an exclamation point on that, one of the passages I
0: wanted to point out here is in the final chapter. And though you do see A restoration uh, narrative at the very end, you do get one of the more terrifying and fierce judgment scenes in chapter nine of the book of Amos. And so this is a new vision. It starts in chapter nine, verse one. I saw the Lord standing beside the altar and he said, strike the capitals until the thresholds shake and shatter them on the heads of all the people. And those who are left of them, I will kill with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away. Not one of them shall escape. Like I said, this is one of the more terrifying and mm-hmm. uh, brutal judgment scenes. But I want to point this out. If they dig into Sheol, from there shall my hand take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there will I bring them down. If they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, from there I will search them out and take them. If they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent and he shall bite them. If you're reading along this, this passage actually should sound very familiar. And I don't know that it's a direct quote, but if you're thinking back to Psalm 139, right. where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall mm-hmm. I flee from your presence? It actually uses three of these same descriptions. If I go, if I make my bed down in Sheol, there you are with me. If I take up the wings of the morning, you are with me. If I go up to the highest of heavens, you are with me. That's a Psalm of David. And it's possible that Amos knew that psalm. It's possible that he's using that imagery. It's also possible that the same spirit that inspired David to write that is the same spirit that revealed this vision of God. And this is where it makes a big difference. What context you're quoting from, right? I think about this sometimes in these verses that we all really love, like Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and for a future. And then later in the book, you see uh, Jeremiah say, "I know the plans I have for you, plans for destruction and destitution." And it all right. depends on who you are in that context, as in terms of what God's plans are for you. The same is true here. Mm-hmm. Flying up to with the wings of the morning, and God being with you can be a really good thing, or it can be a really bad thing, depending on who we're talking about. So my two points here are number one, it's we always have to pay attention to the context, because sometimes we can promise things by taking verses out of context that God has never promised. But the second thing is notice the difference between the presence of God. This is true in every judgment theme in the Bible. God's glory and his love and the joy that comes with that is what it's like to be in the presence of God when you've been reunited with him. But God's wrath actually comes from the exact same thing for people who have not been reunited with him. Right. So the similar effect, or at least the similar reality mm-hmm. of being in the presence of God can manifest very differently in joy forever. Psalm 16, in your presence, there are there are pleasures forevermore. But here... His presence is inescapable, and it is a presence of wrath. And that's what will come upon the enemies of God who don't repent. Again, anybody can repent, but for those who do not repent, the presence of God will actually be the most terrifying thing in the world. And so it's nice to see the exact same language here highlighting the difference of what it's like to be
1: in the presence of God, depending on if you are with him or if you are against him. Exactly. And that, that's the nature of, of our God. And I've heard this uh, said this way about the gospel before, the good news of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the best news you could ever hear for people who turn to God. And it is absolutely the worst thing that could ever happen if you don't. And mm-hmm. those are both true at the same time. And right. I think that that's really a good point. Well, one of my favorite images, and this doesn't have near the theological depth of what you just walked us through, but this is just a pretty little uh, image. in chapter seven, God is showing a vision to Amos and he says this, chapter seven verse seven. This is what God showed me. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, and we all know what that is, and with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people, Israel. And basically, I am seeing if they are straight, if or if they are crooked. And this idea of setting a plumb line, there. I mean, on one sense, you could take it for us and say, oh, my goodness, I, it's salvation by works. I have to do everything right. No, it's think of it more the orientation of my faith and the orientation of my heart. Is it truly pointed at God or is it crookedly pointing toward my own desires? And I love that image of a plumb line and God setting a plumb line or is our devotion wholeheartedly as the scripture said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Is it, is it straight as a plumb line?
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's such a great image. And there's such an easy application there because the plumb line doesn't lie. It goes by the principle of gravity and (laughs) it will show what is true and what is false. And that's a captivating image throughout the old Testament. If you remember, there's two other places where you see a plumb line, you see Ezekiel has a plumb line at one point, and he applies that in a measuring rod that he has to the temple. So again, just like we talked about with Isaiah earlier, Amos is prophesying early and later you're going to have Ezekiel come along and say very similar things, but this time about the temple in Jerusalem. This is no longer the false temple at Bethel. This is the true temple of Jerusalem. They also have turned away from God. And so the plumb line will be brought and it will show that they are crooked. And then you see a plumb line again, actually, in the book of Revelation that shows uh, what I think in that context is probably the false church, people in the church that have turned away and who are teaching false things. They will show show to be crooked. And uh, I think the easy uh, similarity for us here is to say that this is the word of God. Not just literally in the prophet's mouth, although we know that that is the word Mm -hmm. of the Lord. And and in this book, especially, you see, thus says the Lord over and over and over again. But for us, the plumb line is scripture. When you lay your life down next to scripture, do you look like you're following the plumb line of what God has said or not? And that comparison is the way that we are judged. Our actions are judged Um, now just as the same way they were then. They were worshiping on their own terms in Bethel. They were worshiping on their own terms in Jerusalem. These churches were worshiping on their own terms in the in the book of Revelation. Are right. we worshiping on our own terms or are we worshiping on God's terms? Does our life lay down flat next to the plumb line of scripture or does it show us to be off course? This is a powerful image
1: now, just as it was then. I think so. And I think you have to look at it from the right orientation. You can say, well, then I guess I better behave really well, but that's not the direction that this comes from. I would say this about human beings, and I believe it's true for every human being of any time. We tend to order our lives around what is most important to us. When we get up, when we go to bed, what jobs we do, everything about our lives, we tend to order our lives around and focus toward what's really important to us. If we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, Then the Word of God for us, the New Testament, the example of Jesus and those who've come before us, is the ordering of our lives toward God. And that's in the sense that we can say the New Testament is our true plumb line.
0: Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review. Email us. Tell us what you like about it. Tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.